So Freaks, it's your boy Marty here to introduce this rip at TFTC. I sat down with prolific journalist Sam Husseini to talk about controversial topic. We'll see if we get, do you think we get taken down from YouTube for this one? Mm. He doesn't know. We talked about COVID, whether it was created in the lab. What we're talking about now won't be on YouTube. No, it won't be. It won't be. But great episode. Sam's doing very important investigative journalism work. He's one of the last remaining actual journalist who isn't just a lapdog of the mainstream media and the government that likes to use them as a propaganda arm. He's actually asking the tough questions and we, we dove into the tough questions he's been asking throughout the last decades and what the hell is going on in the world right now. This trip is brought to you by our good friends at river. What can I say? I mean, they're doing things the right way. They build their own infrastructure. They build their own wallets. They build their own lightning toolkit. They have their own lightning service provider. Uh, river is a Bitcoin company built by Bitcoiners for Bitcoiners. Uh, great place to buy Bitcoin. If you do buy Bitcoin and you DCA into Bitcoin using River, you're going to get zero fees on your recurring orders when you DCA. It's got the tightest spreads in the industry. Again, they built their own infrastructure and all their Bitcoin is backed one-to-one in multi-sig cold storage. Your Bitcoin is your Bitcoin to withdraw at any time. Do it with auto withdrawals. They just enabled that feature recently. Um, they don't rely on any third parties. Again, they have US phone customer support, which no one else has. So if you want to dial a number to get a human on the other end. River has that human for you to walk you through what what your problems are. You can set up beneficiaries in five minutes. And if you have extra money lying around, you can check out their private client solution, which is a white glove service for big investments and for entities. So go to river.com slash TFTC. Sign up today. You're going to get $5 worth of Bitcoin. River.com slash TFTC. This rip was also brought to you by good friends down the hall, Unchained. Unchained is here doing things the right way as well leveraging Bitcoin's native multi-sig properties to build the financial platform of the future of a world in which we live in a Bitcoin standard. They have their vault product, which is a two or three multi-sig, which allows you to hold two keys and engage in collaborative custody with Unchained. They hold one key in that quorum. Uh, Great place to store. It's a great way to store your Bitcoin in cold storage. Multi-sig, collaborative custody. They have their lending product, which allows you to put Bitcoin up as collateral to get US dollars in return so you don't take the tax hit of selling Bitcoin uh, that's two or three multi-sig as well. You hold one key in that so you can audit the chain to make sure that your Bitcoin is where you think it is and they're not rehypothecating it. They have their IRA product, which allows you to transition your traditional IRA into Bitcoin and then hold your own keys. You hold two keys in that two or three multi-sig quorum. Unchain holds the other. They have their trading desk, which allows you to buy Bitcoin, large amounts of Bitcoin if you need it, and send it straight to your vault, your two or three multi-sig. So they're doing it the right way. Go to unchain.com slash consultation. Tell them the TFTC sent you. Just check them out. Set up a consultation. Learn more about the products that they have and the vision they have for the future of their company. Again, they're doing it the right way, leveraging Bitcoin's native multi-sig product properties. Excuse me. Go to unchain.com slash consultation. Tell them the TFTC sent you. Last but not least, this rip was brought to you by our good friends at Bitcoin Talent Co. Uh, it's a recruiting firm built by Bitcoiners for Bitcoiners. Uh, if you're a company in the space looking to hire, uh, hit up Bitcoin Talent Co. Uh, they're successfully helping companies find high caliber talent in the space. I mean, Unchained's a great example. Uh, if you need a CMO, a CFO, uh, you need uh, people on your sales team, on your marketing team, Bitcoin Talent Co. is going to help you find that talent. They're going to understand your needs and they're, they know 
how to go find what you need. Uh, big, big experience, a, a lot of experience in the recruiting space. Uh, Andy, the co-founder, uh, was leading the, the people's team at Uber, took them from 100 to 10,000 employees, so he knows how to hire people. Uh, again, they're Bitcoiners, so they understand Bitcoin at the protocol level, lightning, mining, multi-sig, whatever it may be. Um, so if you're a company in the space looking to hire, hit them up. They also have their flex program, which allows you to hire part-time contractor work. If you don't need full-time employees, you're looking to uh, be capital efficient and you only need help for, for a particular sprint. They have their flex program, which you can tap into. Then alternatively, if you're a talent looking to get into the space, hit them up, send them your resume, set up a profile and get in the mix to join our journey to the Bitcoin standard. Enjoy this rip with Sam. Very important rip. Thank you. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. What's up, freaks? Welcome back to TFTC. Really excited for this episode, Sam. I was just mentioning, I'm a bit embarrassed that it's taken me this long to find your journalistic work. You came across my radar a few weeks ago when you were, I believe, uh, at a State Department press briefing and you were asking questions about the USAID's uh, funding of the Wuhan lab uh, and Ralph Barrick's connection particularly, uh, and that really piqued my interest because we've been covering uh, COVID here over the last three years, three and a half, or almost four years now since uh, it was unleashed on the world. And that led me to reach out to you to invite you on the show to talk about this particular instance and this particular question you asked uh, uh, the press secretary. And then that led me to do research on all the work that you've done not all of it, I'm sure, but a lot of the work you've done throughout the years and you've been on the front lines of trying to hold the power structure's feet to the fire, asking really hard questions, whether it be uh, about the war in Iraq, the anthrax, false flag, I think you would define it as, um, and most importantly, in recent years, the the narrative around COVID. Um, and you've been on top of it uh, based off of my research since, since covid again, was unleashed on the world in early 2020 and been skeptical about the mainstream narrative. Um, so yeah, that was my monologue saying, I'm embarrassed I didn't find you. You've been doing great work for decades now, and I appreciate you joining us on the show today. Thank you very much. Um, it's, it's a testament to the power of shadow banning <laughs> that, uh, that you and lots of people don't know about my work, but I'm delighted to be with you. Why, so you pretty sure you're shadow banned? Oh yeah, I've documented how I'm, I'm sometimes uniquely shadow banned. Uh, um, uh, once documented, right after Musk took over Twitter, uh, I put out a piece critiquing his stance about freedom of speech, not freedom of reach. And then right after that, I was shadow banned in a way I'd never been shadow banned before. Like you would, if I click, if you put 
I put out a tweet and then you responded to it and you looked at your response, my tweet would disappear. It was just totally freaky. I mean, I'm, I think I'm still shadow banned to some extent, uh, but for a while I was like shadow banned. Like I'd never seen anybody shadow banned. Before, well, so. I'm happy I, that that tweet. I was able to document that, you know, when that happened. So. Yeah. Well, I'm happy that tweet made it through the shadow ban because I'm really yeah. excited for this conversation. I, I think we could start there just with, your questioning of the press secretary about USAID's involvement with the potential funding of the Wuhan lab and the connection between Ralph Barrick, uh, I believe out of North Carolina and the research that was going on, particularly around gain of function with uh, the coronavirus specifically. And uh, again, you've been on this since the early days of COVID February, March, 2020. Uh, What sort of tipped you off to, the mainstream narrative not being aligned with what the things that you were seeing. Um, I, I've written about this. Um, big chunk of what tipped me off was Francis Boyle, who's a law professor who wrote the U S implementing legislation for the bioweapons convention. Um, I actually got an email from him sometime in late January of 2020 um, after the outbreak started and, um, he was saying, you know, somebody should check to see if there's a lab in Wuhan. <laughs> um, cause he was suspicious cause he, you know, he's been through so many of these outbreaks and occasionally, he, you know, so, you know, determines or, you know, thinks that they, they, they would be connected to a lab. Um, and then a couple of days later, uh, there was a news story that, you know, said, oh, thank goodness there's a lab in Wuhan that can help assess the situation. <laughs> um, totally getting the uh, structure of the issue backwards. Um, and, you know, uh, Francis shot me an email and said, bingo. Um, he, he, he's had a, a small list that he sends stuff about biowarfare, you know, people who have expressed an interest in, you know, I've done some work uh, on the anthrax attacks, as you mentioned, from uh, 2001. They, for folks who aren't familiar, um, uh, following 9-11, there were letters with anthrax in them sent to um, major media and members of Congress. Um, the two members of Congress that they were sent to that we know of uh, were Dashiell and Leahy, who were the two members of Congress who seemed poised to challenge the implementation of the Patriot Act. Um, so the Congress had to be shut down. Uh, there was a nationwide panic. You know, 9-11 was sort of a discrete event. Um, so the anthrax attacks following 9-11 um, were sort of, you know, set off a genuine national panic. People were afraid to open their mail, which back then was a really important thing. Um, and, uh, so, um, and that's when they launched the Afghan war as well. Uh, the anthrax letters came with, you know, letters written on them saying, you know, uh, death to America, death to Israel, praise to Allah. So they were obviously intended to have people point fingers at Arabs and or Muslims, specifically Iraq and or Al Qaeda. And that's how they got played in the major media. Um, and you had anonymous sources telling ABC's Brian Ross that they traced the anthrax to a strain that was from Iraq, which ended up being, of course, complete disinformation. 
and Brian Ross has continued to protect the anonymous source who fed him that false information. Um, so, um, uh, but it, it turned out after serious forensic evidence was done that it was the AIM strain, which was connected to U.S. labs and or uh, their allies, most likely either in Britain or Israel. Um, so, um, you know, so that, that, that's the crux of the anthrax case. They ended up pinning it on a series of individuals and the case fell apart on each of them. And then they pinned it on Bruce Ivins, a lone scientist at Fort Detrick, uh, who committed allegedly committed suicide and therefore they didn't have to have a trial and therefore they didn't have to produce evidence. And the FBI just said, no, he did it. Uh, too bad. We don't have, we can't have a trial. Leahy, one of the, um, senators who was under attack finally brought Mueller, uh, before the Senate in 2008. This is before Mueller became infamous for his, uh, Russia gate work. Um, and Leahy told Mueller to his face, I don't buy this. I don't buy that one person did all of this. And there the matter stood. And Congress never investigated it. There was one lone congressman who kept saying, maybe we should, you know, find out what happened. Um, so Congress went under a false flag bioweapons attack at a critical time in U.S. history. It helped spawn the Patriot Act, civil liberties repression, and um helped start the forever wars. Afghanistan was the first invasion. And then you, of course, had Iraq and, and Libya and Syria and so on and so forth. Um, and it never investigated it. Uh, so I, you know, in part contrast that with the whole January 6th, you know, endless talk and speculation and so-called investigation and so on. Um, so that, that that's part of the background that got me interested in this general subject and the unique features of bioweapons and what, what th that they can do and what they can do in terms of having a mass panic. Um, people become very frightened um, as they did after 9-11, as they did after the anthrax attacks, as they did after COVID. And it hinders many people's capacity to think and think critically. Yeah. And I'm having a bit of pattern recognition here because <clears throat> again, I was a bit shocked doing research on your work on the anthrax, uh, the aftermath of the anthrax false flag, I think it is safe to say now at this point, but I don't remember. I mean, whoever sent those letters was either from a U.S. I mean, whether it was Bruce Ivins or a wider conspiracy, um, it, you know, it was, a, it was clearly they, they intended to make it seem that it was coming from an Arab or Muslim source. And it, wasn't so it was a false flag yeah and this is where the pattern recognition comes in because i'm 32 i was 10 11 when that happened and um obviously 20 20 years have passed 21 years and i not am going to admit like i never knew that there was that deep of an investigation into anthrax it was successfully swept under the rug and something that I wasn't aware of until I was researching your uh, journalism on that particular event. And it seems like bringing this forward to COVID and the potential that USAID and I haven't heard you mention it, but I'm sure you're aware of like the NIH funding the Wuhan lab. It seems like something similar 
is being attempted in real time right now in regards to COVID in terms of brushing everything under the rug, not answering any legitimate questions and just trying to make people believe that this was actually something that uh, was animal born and was a natural phenomena that, that took over the world. Yeah. Um, and, and by the way, there, and I, I plugged it on, on my Substack that, that there have been a number of writers, Whitney Webb, uh, Alexis Bader Mayer, who's who've made additional connections between the anthrax attacks and um, the uh, uh, and COVID in terms of personnel involved, uh, as well as as well as uh, institutions and other things. Um, there was a tremendous uh, propaganda blitz at the beginning of uh, the pandemic to pretend that it couldn't co- have come out of a lab. Um, uh, this was done. There were sort of two pillars to this. Well, well first I should say, but before those pillars came out, I was at a news conference, uh, which really sort of sent me down this path at the press club where I used to have an office. Um, and um, the CDC was there and they uh, were talking about the outbreak. Uh, this was before it was declared a pandemic, uh, February 11th. Um, and I had you know, I asked, you know, is it the CDC's contention? I had just learned about that the, the lab existed in Wuhan a couple of days before this. And I said, you know, is it the CDC's contention that this has no relationship to the lab in Wuhan? Uh, it's the only BSL-4. That's the highest level lab that we know of um, in all of China. Um, and they gave a very disingenuous answer. And I followed up Um you know, specifically saying, you know, even if it looks like it came out of nature, it still doesn't mean that it might not have come th- through the lab. That is, it could have been collected. Um, and then, um, you know, you know, housed at the lab, <laughs> now through the lab. I, to me, that is obviously lab origin. If you take something from a cave where nobody is and it's not hurting anybody and then you put it in a city of several million people, um, you're doing something there. Um, and they again gave a very disingenuous response. So that sort of set me into starting to look at this. Um, and then in the coming, um, weeks and months, there were two pillars put out. One was the letter in the Lancet, Peter Daszak, and, um, who's head of EcoHealth Alliance, which funded the lab in Wuhan. Um, and, um, uh, Jeremy Farrar, who was head of the Wellcome Trust, which is sort of the Gates Foundation equivalent in Britain, and he now is um, chief scientist for the WHO, which is now in the process of juicing up uh, its treaties, and the UN now is meeting uh, to further this, to further empower the WHO in terms of what it can do during a pandemic. Um, These provisions will likely further erode uh, democratic processes in individual countries and their sovereignty. Um, uh, So that was one pillar from the Lancet. And the other pillar was uh, from uh, Nature Medicine. Uh, The the Lancet letter said, we condemn conspiracy theories that this came out of a lab, which is a lunatic statement to make, a lunatic statement at best. It's actually a very disingenuous, manipulative statement in order to hinder people from critical thought, from saying, hold on, could this have come out of a lab to call it a conspiracy theory? Um, 
and then uh, shortly after that, that the other major pillar uh, that came out was a nature medicine article. Um, and um, that was signed by Robert Gary and uh, Christian Anderson, uh, two U.S.-based scientists at Tulane and Scripps Research, respectively. Um, some of us speculated at the time that other people who didn't sign it were behind that. Uh, limited FOIAs that have come out since from the group U.S. Right to Know um, show clearly that uh, Fauci, um, as well as Jeremy Farrar, had a substantial hand in molding that uh, that article, uh, which, you know, again, both of these had major echo chambers throughout the major media and online and so on. Um, so they, um, and that article said that COVID could not be a laboratory construct and it purported to be a scientific article. It wasn't, um, it, it disingenuously um, tried to dismiss the possibility of lab origin. Um, I started finally getting some stuff published at that point. This is before I had my Substack. I got a piece in Salon and I hooked up with the people at Independent Science News. Uh, and they've been publishing some of my stuff. Um, and then one of the things that I did was um, document the uh, money going from um, uh, EcoHealth Alliance, uh, for going to EcoHealth Alliance from the NIH, as you said, uh, but far more than the NIH, which got some publicity. They got far more money from the Pentagon and even far more money from USAID. USAID the NIH money was, I would think, around $3 million. USAID over the years had given them um, upwards of $60 million. Um, and so uh, I have periodically been able to get into the State Department briefings, and so I've been pursuing that. I've asked at the State Department four times now um, over the last year when I've been able to go back there again, um, and I've never gotten a straight answer uh, from them, not even an acknowledgement that they did fund the lab in Wuhan, um, that, that some of their money made it there. They have not acknowledged that. Um, uh, to the best of my knowledge, other people have made that charge, including former government people who I don't necessarily take their statements at face value. For example, Redfield, the former head of the CDC, has said that the USAID funded the lab in Wuhan, um, but they won't confirm it. Um, and um, I'm going to continue to try to get that information out of them. Um, in terms of how much funding and to force them to disclose documentation because it's critical. You know, you know people have a lot of mythologies about biowarfare. They say that biowarfare is a poor man's weapon. Uh, they've even, you know, the, people, the Republicans in Congress had some hearings, which had some decent information on them. And they had some, this guy from MIT on it. He was like, why is the U.S. and China great powers, why are they engaging in this stuff? This is, this is a poor man's weapon. It's not a poor man's weapon. It has a unique attribute, which is deniability. Nice country you got there. It's a shame you just had a swine flu outbreak. Maybe we can help you with that. Um, Bio-warfare um, is a, a unique weapon. And it can be used by so-called great powers for very destructive purposes. 
um, because they can claim that they are not responsible. Um, they're not responsible for it. So um, I don't know if you want me to keep going. There are other things, other paths that my research took me to. But... No, I mean, I'm just okay. sitting back. Not only is it, it's a very nefarious weapon too, because it's almost like humans Absolutely. trying to play God with nature and who knows what the Absolutely. unknown it, unknowns are that. Yeah. And it kills civilians uh, for the most part. Um, it's an incredibly nefarious weapon. Um, and the, the, I mean, another unique attribute of it is, you know, um, the one good thing about a nuclear war is that you know that it happened. You could be under a biological weapons attack and you wouldn't necessarily know it because you don't know if it's a weapon or if it's a natural outbreak, especially if you're being disinformed about the possibility that it came out of a lab. And if it came out of a lab, then it could well be a weapon. Um, you know, the Bioweapons Convention prohibits this kind of work, and they've tried to, in effect, do workarounds and exceptions to say, oh, it's, it's only for defensive purposes. It's actually not a legitimate argument because the convention and the associated U.S. law uh, doesn't have the word defensive in it as an exception. It says peaceful purposes. So Francis Boyle, the law professor who wrote it, you know, makes a stink about that, and I think legitimately. Um but uh, they pretend that they're doing this work for beneficial purposes, but it's all a statement of intent, right? It's like saying the U.S. invaded Iraq because of Iraq, because of alleged weapons of mass destruction, or because they allegedly wanted to bring democracy to Iraq. That's the statement of purpose, uh, uh, just a pretext that's not to be taken seriously. So for them to take viruses and then make them more deadly and say, oh, we're only doing this, you know, for you know, humanistic beneficial reasons. Well, that's, that's what you say. Uh, there's no reason to take that at face value. No. And then bringing this back to the USAID and their funding, I mean, you mentioned the FOIA request that sort of brought to light the fact that Fauci was emailing with others to sort of form the narrative in the early days. And that's a direct paper trail to prove some type of literal conspiracy to conspired to drive a narrative into the public's consciousness. Um, but there have been individuals who've come out and said USAID has funded uh, the Wuhan lab in the past and the NIH. I believe there's paper trails of the NIH that we can point to as, are there yeah, any USAID? Yeah, I, have, I don't bring that up because that was established and conceded early on. Mm -hmm. And so there's no paper trail that shows direct funding from USAID to Wuhan. It's just hearsay at this point. It has not been made public yet. Yeah. And they will not. They have, they have thus far refused to acknowledge it on the four occasions that I've asked about it at the State Department briefings. Yeah. Why do, and, why do you... and I've emailed them, which they, they usually respond to my emails when I do an immediate request for something. Actually, they, they responded once with just boilerplate material about the subject, but not answering the question. Um, so, Does the USAID have some special protections where they're not an agency that is forced no. to give up information? Like, could this information be FOIA requested? Or? It could, and it has been. That was actually one of my questions at the State Department, the fact that U.S. Right to Know filed FOIAs with USAID early on during the pandemic and they never responded. So earlier this year, I harangued uh, Ned Price, who was their spokesperson. He lost his job shortly after this 
um, and that, you know, when are you going to, you know, why haven't you released these documents? It's been three years and you wouldn't, wouldn't give a meaningful response. So I harangued him about that for a while. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, so we don't know that, you know, this is why, and the, you know, again, some Republicans have made some decent noise. Sometimes, you know, they overly blame China for things from my point of view. But what they haven't really done is use their subpoena power. Right? The, the Republicans, um, you know, in, in the House um, have a majority and they could use their subpoena power and they could force these agencies to turn over documents. They could force individuals to testify and they have not meaningfully done that. Um, so you, you have, you know, there are so many aspects to the failure that's gone on here. Uh, from, you know, the, the stonewalling by the agencies themselves, the complete uh, disregard for the facts by the Democrats and even many so-called progressives, and the fact that the Republicans really aren't using the tools that they have available. Why do you think they're keeping everything so close to the chest and trying to brush it under the rug? I think the U.S. is dominated by political factions who have two goals in mind. One is to target China to some extent, and the other is to ensure that you continue um, the uh, what is effectively biowarfare work. And there are personnel behind the scenes, some of whom I've been able to track. For example, uh, Robert Cadlick uh, had a role in the anthrax attacks. He was in the Bush administration at the time. And then he became, he was over at HHS, um, Health and Human Services, and he effectively ran Operation Warp Speed, uh, uh, which rolled out the vaccines, so-called vaccines, the jabs, at the beginning of the, uh, you know, during the Trump administration. And now he's over at the Senate, effectively directing traffic as to what the uh, Republicans um, in the Senate do and don't do. So um, that's a problem right there. Um, that's going to hinder what the Republicans do and don't do, at least on the Senate side. And I imagine it has some effect over on the House side. And there might be other constraints there that I haven't been able to figure out yet. Um, so, I mean, there is a deep-seated U.S. establishment and there are a lot of layers to it. And I'm I and other people are doing our best to peel away. Yeah. Yeah. They're really good at protecting the establishment and it's weird. It's like, it's, whether it's anthrax weapons of mass destruction or what we're discussing now as it pertains to COVID, there's just a ton of gaslighting and Absolutely. it's effective people. Again, going back to anthrax, like I was unaware of the, the follow-ups on the anthrax attacks until I was doing research for this interview. And that's what I worry about in the context of COVID is that happens and all this time passes and yeah. it just gets swept yeah. under the rug. And yeah, COVID stuff already is being memory hold. Um, and there's a lot of stuff out there. Another case that I've investigated, I mentioned um, the second pillar of propaganda um, uh, the Proximal Origins paper that said that COVID could not be a laboratory construct written by Robert Gary at Tulane and Christian Anderson at Scripps Research. Um, so I started doing research about the two of them. Why are they doing this? Um, 
Now, as we said, since then, you know, there's been documentation that came out regarding Fauci and Farrar playing a role um, in that article. But they themselves had a very insidious motivation to uh, lie about the possibility that COVID had lab origins. And that is that they are respectively the president and vice president of a thing called the Viral Hemorrhagic Fever Consortium. This is a collection of labs, um, U.S. labs in West Africa. At the time in 2014, um, they, um, you had the 2014 Ebola outbreak, uh, which killed 11,000 people, and it was probably the largest um, international crises of that year. Um, Africans at the time said that it, uh, that, that, that they were concerned that it came out of a lab, out of the U S labs there that the Ebola did. Uh, and they were treated as nut job conspiracy theorists, simpleton Africans who don't know anything about anything. Uh, I did a very deep investigation about this with Jonathan Latham at independent science news. He's a virologist. Um, and we came to the conclusion that there was a very serious case uh, to be made about this. I don't want to you know, go on and on about the specifics. Uh, part of our work relied on the work of Cherno Ba, um, who's a journalist from Sierra Leone. He actually is in the U.S. now, just got his Ph.D. at Northwestern. Um, and he, um, he pointed out lots of things, and we built on top of them. For example, the... Um, U.S. labs were in um, uh, in Sierra Leone, um, and the claim was by many of the same individuals who later played a role in COVID that the outbreak happened just over the border in Guinea, uh, and they pinned it all on this child, uh, little Emil, who they claimed was two years old for playing with bats. In fact, he was only 18 months, probably too young to be playing with bats. They claimed that he died of Ebola. The Workers in the village uh, say, and his father say, no, he died of malaria. Um, the uh, t- German team um, by Fabian Linders, who, as I indicate, also played a role in COVID origins and working with Peter Daszak, um, he uh, um, couldn't find any Ebola in the, vill- in the village. They claimed that it came from a burnt out tree where the bats had been. Uh, but were no longer there. Um, they admitted in their article that uh, prior Ebola outbreaks had a die-off of the local mammalian species, and there was no such die-off in this case. It, it, the, this is in West Africa, which is a thousand miles away from prior Ebola outbreaks, which had been in Central Africa. Uh, so it was kind of similar to um, uh, COVID in that respect. That that is COVID breaks out in Wuhan, apparently, uh, which is far away from the caves where you would think that it would be from. Um, And there there was a whole series of things that indicate that this narrative was wrong. When Doctors Without Borders finally got to the area, they complained about a hidden outbreak in Sierra Leone. Uh, Metabiota was actually part of the consortium. People might recognize that name. It's had a hand in the Ukraine and with Hunter Biden's corruption and so on. Um, It's actually 
also connected to co to uh, Google, um, which is an important player in all of this um, because of the surveillance aspects of it. Um, but they, um, uh, Metabiota was apparently undercounting cases in Sierra Leone, again, to make it seem like the outbreak happened in Guinea, away from the U.S. labs, that they were constructing a narrative so that people wouldn't think that it uh, came out of the, or had anything to do with the U.S. labs. So that, that, uh, another strand of the evidence here is that people might have heard that so-called gain-of-function lab work, uh, that's the euphemism for making pathogens more deadly or more transmissible, gain-of-function lab work. Um, it was paused by the Obama administration. Actually, it was paused on October 17, 2014, which is the exact same day that Ron Klain became Ebola czar. Ron Klain is a major mover and shaker um, in the Democratic establishment, um, and uh, the, Obama made him Ebola czar after the crisis, you know, really started heating up. And that was the day um, that the pause was put into place, the pause for federal funding of gain-of-function lab work. And there are other indications, other cutoffs of funding that indicate that the Obama administration itself assessed that Ebola came out of a lab that, that for that outbreak. Um, and we lay that out in, in the article for Independent Science News. Um, and uh, so, I mean, and Ron Klain, just so people might not know, realize who he is. I mean, he was just he was chief of staff for Biden until earlier this year. Um, huh. You know, basically makes him prime minister, uh, but he's not a household name because a lot of the people who are actually making decisions aren't, you know, aren't, you know, put in front of the camera. Yeah, it's very obvious that Biden's not making the decisions. So he's one of the shadowy figures behind him pushing all this. And going back to like the gain of function research, like I remember that. And so like with Ebola and Ron Klein stepping in, did they do you think they realized like, oh crap, we can't be doing this here. This is pretty bad. Um so we're gonna yeah, stop I it. That, I mean, I don't know exactly what happened. I, I know that's my question, but it it looks like they said, Holy crap, this could have come out of a lab. We gotta you know, distance ourselves from this for whatever reason. Maybe, you know, if the truth ever does come out, they want to say, well, look, we cut off the funding. We, we paused the, the work or because they, they realized the danger, uh, you know, whatever the reason is, but there's a whole series of things to indicate that they thought that it came out of lab. Yeah, and this is where, like, Wuhan and COVID comes back in, correct? Because they shut down funding at places like Fort Detrick here in the U.S. and then allocated all that research abroad, to places like Wuhan, at least that's what the theory is, correct? Well, I mean, I mean, Fort Detrick is, you know, very well funded as far as I, I know. Um, but um, it, it, it seems that NIH, as well as USAID and other things, funded uh, dangerous lab work in other places around the world using EcoHealth Alliance. You know, it sounds like a nice, nice earthy, crunchy group. Uh, but, you know, it, it's, it has advisors who used to work at Fort Detrick, which is the flagship U.S. bioweapons facility, you know, for decades on end. Um, so, um, yeah, so they, they have clearly funneled 
this dangerous lab work around the world. And uh, one of the places is Wuhan. Um, you know, there's been some attention, and I haven't really dug into this, but the whole thing around the labs in Ukraine mm-hmm. uh, is a serious issue, and the Russians have made a lot of very serious allegations, and they deserve to certainly be looked at about U.S. labs there. Yeah, and that was funny because that was a conspiracy theory until Victoria Nolan was pressed and forced right. to actually right. admit. I mean, I don't know if he, she was forced. I mean, she was asked by, uh, uh, you know, um, what's his name? Uh, Rubio uh, about it. And, you know, you, you don't know what's going on in these people's brains, but he seemed to think that, you know, she would dismiss this, but you know, that, that, that there were these you know, U.S. bio labs there, but she didn't dismiss it. She acknowledged it. So, you know, at least that that came out. At least that much of it was officially confirmed. But I suspect that there's a great deal more. But I, I haven't dug into the Ukraine thing. Yeah, I can't help but think that the federal government and all the alphabet soup agencies that exist below it, whether it's in the intelligence sector or bioweapons sector there's it doesn't seem like they have americans or the citizens of other countries best interests at heart i mean having been doing this for decades now like are you completely jaded by (laughs) the political process and the federal apparatus that exists in this country and globally it's sort of pretty interconnected at certain levels yeah it is um i'm not jaded i'm you know regular People are, you know, um, you know, not aware of what's going on. And there are serious media and big tech mechanisms to keep critical information from the public. And it's my job to try to understand the information as best as I can and present it as best I can. Uh, yeah, the, these institutions are um, designed to maintain an edifice of empire. Um, that the U.S. is an empire, and but they, they're working in concert sometimes with other powers. So there's a dimension to this where you have the U.S. and Chinese establishments colluding as well as sometimes clashing. Even I would say still with the Russian establishment uh, colluding as well as clashing sometimes. Um, they're vying for power among sort of like the Democrats and Republicans, right? They, they seem to be clashing at sometimes, but a lot of the time. They're colluding, you know, they're, 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 you know, each saying, you know, pretending to be for the public in different ways while they're colluding with their buddies on Wall Street or Silicon Valley or, uh, or the military and getting the actual programs through that are uh, diverting U.S. taxpayer money towards nefarious purposes that benefit a very few people. And the most regular people uh, totally in the dust, if not completely ripped off. Um, it's a familiar pattern, but the job of journalism and the job of citizens and others is to try to understand as best you can and try to expose it and you know implement whatever things you can to hold these people accountable. Um, I think we're in a unique window right now. Um, to hold these people accountable. I mean, I've been very frustrated by the fact that Jeremy Farrar, uh, who then was head of the Wellcome Trust and played a pivotal role in disseminating the false information 
that COVID could not have come from a lab is now chief scientist of the WHO. It's a position he took on just this year. Uh, it's ridiculous uh, that he's the chief scientist of the WHO. Um, it's particularly dangerous because the WHO is attempting to juice up its power. Uh, I'm very angry at somebody who a lot of people had hope in, uh, Robert uh, Kennedy, who put out a book on Fauci that had some good information on it. I read it when it came out. Um, it had some stuff I didn't agree with, but a lot of stuff in it was good. And then he runs for president, and now he suddenly, when he gets on big media, doesn't talk about pandemic issues. He doesn't talk about lab origins. He doesn't talk about gain of function. He's not educating the public. At least when you have like like a sheepdog, like um, you know Bernie Sanders, you know he was a dead end in a lot of ways. But at least he gave voice to a critical issue: income inequality. Kennedy's not even doing that. You know, he's, he's running around, he's talking about the border, he's talking about this issue, he's talking about that issue, and he's self-censoring it is the best way, is the most polite way to put it. And he's like making completely deranged pro-Israeli statements as well. Um, that's where his energy is going. And he's not educating people about gain-of-function lab work that poses an existential threat to humanity um, on par, if not greater than... Um, uh, you know, you know, climate or nuclear war or anything else, as we've seen, right? We all lived through COVID and can see what can happen, and the next one could be worse. Um, uh, and Kennedy's, you know, not not coming out on this, uh, and certainly not when he gets on big media outlets. You know, when he gets on Rogan or when he gets on some establishment media outlet. You know, I'm sure he's still doing some small podcasts where he might mention this. That's not my point. He's got an opportunity to reach a mass public on this. And he has thus far, these many months into his campaign, failed to do so. There are some good moves, though, I should say. Um, you know, I said that next one could be worse. And part of what I'm thinking of, that there are scientists at the University of Wisconsin. And we, we were talking about. Uh, Ralph Barrick earlier, and if you want to, we can talk more about him. He's at the University of North Carolina. Uh, but uh, in Wisconsin, um, the, the scientists there um, uh, did work that made the avian flu, which is highly, highly lethal, uh, but not easily transmissible, and they made it more easily transmissible. It's estimated that if that got out, we're talking about billions with a B people dead. Um, uh, but it was government money, uh, as well as funding from the Gates Foundation, that funded uh, the work at the uh, at the University of Wisconsin that did that. Um, there is legislation now in Wisconsin, state legislation, to try to stop that. Um, Why are so they even working on it? We're scientists and we're curious and we want to know and we think that if we do this work that it will help prevent the next pandemic. That's what they say. <laughs> that, 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 that's what they say. Fundamentally. Again, guys, it's just like completely hubristic man trying to play God. Totally. Totally. Yeah. And you have other scientists who don't get a lot of press saying it. 
you know, you, you have prestigious scientists saying this is madness, this is crazy. Um, um, the, the most prominent person, the most prominent scientist in the United States is probably uh, Richard Ebright. Uh, he's at Rutgers. Um, and I imagine that he's at Rutgers and not a more prestigious university precisely because he's taken principled stands on this. Um, he's an scientist, um, and, you know, and he's been very outspoken in his you know, warning of the dangers of this, of this lab. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, it's very, I'm, I'm pretty jaded. It's very disheartening. Um, I'm, I'm sorry you're jaded, but it's, you know, isn't it liberating to at least get some level of, 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 of truth about what's going on and, you know, at least some level of things to do, right? I mean, I'm saying that there, that there's this thing in Wisconsin, so I don't know if you have any listeners in Wisconsin, um, and they can, you know, help push that. I, I wrote an article about it and, you know, I linked to the legislation. Uh, if people are in other places where this lab work is being done, it's being done in Texas at Galveston, uh, as I say, North Carolina with Barrick, who's probably doing the most dangerous stuff. I mean, he, you know, not the most dangerous, but the most sophisticated, I would say. Um, Maryland, where I am right now, because uh, that's where Fort Detrick is. It'll be interesting if the Maryland government tried to stop Fort Detrick, which is a federal facility, from doing lab work. But that's a fight I'd like to see happen. Um, uh and uh, presumably at Scripps and other facilities in California. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> well, you mentioned the window of time. Uh, and that's because, you know, because you know, people, you know, you know, pandemic is over, but here we are. WHO is trying to do a power grab. You know, they, they, they could, you know, they could declare a pandemic, you know, two months, two years from now, who the hell knows. And suddenly everybody's in lockdown mode again. And then, then the repression really kicks in. So we have a relatively open period right now and we need to make the most of it. I think. Agreed. And that's the scary thing, like bringing this back to media, which outside of individuals like yourself seems wholly un- incapable or unwilling to actually do the hard work and educate the public, like bringing the WHO back into this, like YouTube has come out in the last two months and said, if you say anything on our platform that goes against what the world health organization is telling us is correct, we're going to, we're going to remove your, your content, uh, and, and give you a strike. And Logan, my producer and I were just talking right before this, there's Dr. Paul Saladino. He had an episode about raw milk and just the benefits of raw milk and misconceptions around it a couple of years ago. And they pulled that uh, a couple of days ago because the World Health Organization doesn't recognize raw milk as something that people should be able to ingest. And that's like the scary thing when you have this supra structure of federal government and large corporations like Google teaming up to really prevent this information from getting out there. It's, it's very scary. And it's part of the reason why we do this show, but we are, we're being honest with ourselves. We're a gnat on the ass of the elephant that is the mainstream media and this sort of techno political um, superstructure that exists out there. Like we're, it's really a David versus Goliath type setup right now for the individuals who want the truth and 
the power structure that doesn't want anybody realizing that truth. Yeah, no, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. The, the resources on the other side are tremendous. And, you know, like we said, there are different factions of them. And part of the problem there is that they try to make you pick a side, you know, you know, funnel you into the, you know, MSNB, you know, Democrat MSNBC world or, you know, Trump world or whatever. But they both, for the most part, lead to the fundamentally same place. So it's, it's kind of a con that goes on there. So I have to sort of overcome that as well. Yeah. And then you mentioned Eli, Elon in the beginning of the episode. And <clears throat> yeah, he's posturing like he's trying to make right. X this platform of free speech. But I, I think I've been calling Elon the Manchurian candidate of the private sector um, for the last few months. Because if you just look at his body of work, he's heavily dependent on government subsidies and all of his other lines of businesses. And to think that he would sacrifice that, that money spigot um, by allowing people to, to speak freely on, on X is um, a bit naive on behalf of a lot of people out there who actually believe that he's really trying to bring free speech back. Yeah. I mean, in, in some respects, it's, you know, terrible that he's deceiving people, but people know that they need something else. You know, uh, there's a hunger out there and they don't know what it is they're just flailing around saying maybe trump will provide an answer no he's not gonna do it is elon gonna provide it is he gonna help that the, the the public is hungry for you know some modicum of you know accountability and you know actual facts and um genuine honesty i think it's just that you have to peel through so many layers of deceit to try to get to it. And most people, you know, taking care of their kids or parents or whatever and <laughs> trying to get by and don't, you know, can't, can't, you know, go through all this stuff. Um, so it's a matter of people who can try to present information as clearly and concisely as possible. And sometimes I succeed and sometimes I fail and other people can pick up the ball on parts of it and, do local activism. I mean, I, I mean, I think that there could be all kinds of opportunities to sort of meld the online world with the real world. Um, you know, you know, put lawn signs up that you know debunk <laughs> things, and then post them online to encourage other people to do the same thing. Or, you know, um, I'm hoping to set up some projects where I sort of concisely put together information on papers like literally a pdf file and then people can pass it out in front of an institution especially i'm just outside of dc so imagine people you know flyering in effect in front of these institutions to including reaching the employees of the institutions half of whom don't know what the hell was actually going on in the building that they work um uh, to try to disseminate that information it's you know, it's a constant battle of, you know, trying to get information out and trying to get, you know, get um, some semblance, I hate to say reform, because I think that we need more than reforms, but some kind of uh, genuinely positive, meaningful change. Yeah, we need uh, 
There's people to wake up. Number one, I'm imagining a lawn sign right now. In this house, we believe that the NIH funded gate of function research. Oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. <laughs> that would be brilliant. Go, you know, I, I really think that there, there's like money to be made on stuff like that, you know. Um, uh, that would be, that would be fat because you know, most of those lawn signs have disappeared. You'll notice mm-hmm. you know, pe- people, kn- people know they're not willing to acknowledge, but at some level they know that they were conned, you know? Um, so I think something like that, <laughs> I'm so glad you said that, uh, something like that could take off. Uh, you know, can I, you know, if you go with that, can I get a, you know, 2% cut or something. <laughs> yeah. You know what? You, uh, we've got, we're thinking about spinning up a merch store. We may need to add a, a lawn sign section to the it. store. Uh, I've got Go some ideas. That'd be great. Yeah. Uh, um, no, and I know we have to wrap up here soon. We only blocked off an hour, but hopefully this is the first yeah. of many conversations because there's many more rabbit holes. I'd like to dive down with you, Sam. And um, again, I just want to thank you for the work you're doing. Uh, hopefully, uh, this message gets out there and your work spreads to others and you can evade the shadow ban that Elon has put on you. Um, because I think the work that you're doing again is extremely important and we need more of this information out there. And most importantly, we, like, I think that's one of the most impressive things about the way in which you relay this information is you do it without fear and you're very um, straight to the point and you have your facts behind you and it's, doesn't come off like some crazy conspiracy theory uh, archetype that that many people try to thrust on you. It's very logical and coherent and easy to follow, yeah. which I think does a lot of people trying to get truth out there disservice when they get very passionate about it and uh, aggressive and screaming at people. I think doing it in a very uh, sort of monotone, not monotone, but straightforward way, following logic and, and reason. I haven't had the conspiracy theory thing thrown at me that often that I can recall. And I think, I, I hope that it's because I, you know, if anything, I'm overly conservative in terms of the information that I put out. That is, uh, you know, I mean, my speculations, I got to tell you, are far more interesting than any that I generally hear from, you know, whatever groups that are actually engaging in conspiracy theories and so on. But another thing interesting about that term is, you know, if you talk to people who follow corporate crime, for example, they 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 ridicule the term. I mean, they're they're like, of course, there are conspiracies. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you know what what. you know what Purdue Pharma did with opioids? That was, you know, you follow the paper trail. That was a clear conspiracy. It was a corporate conspiracy. And uh, as you alluded to, the emails between Fauci and Farrar and Gary and Anderson uh, that constructed the um, pillar of propaganda, the Proximal Origins paper, that was effectively a conspiracy to defraud the public, uh, to propagandize them into thinking that it could, that COVID couldn't have come out of a lab. Imagine if that information got out in early 2020. Imagine if the global public understood that this thing, that they're making me stay at home and I can't even go and hug my mother, (laughs) you know, uh, that this thing came out of a lab. Who are these sons of bitches and how the hell do I beat the crap out of them? That would have been the question on (laughs) most of the people in the planet's mind. And they deceived the public 
And so I'm saying there's got to be some modicum of accountability now, finally, before the next one. Yeah. I saw your, your recent tweet, Free Palestine, uh, Jail Fauci. Uh, <laughs> the rest is a footnote. <laughs> That's, yeah. uh, you know, it, it, I mean, it, that partially came out of a frustration between the, you know, um, the people around who are supporting Robert Kennedy and the people who are supporting uh, uh, Cornell West. You know, that they, they each get sort of half the equation. And a lot of my work has been in trying to get different parts of the anti-establishment. You know, I would say like, you know, I used to, from Kucinich to Ron Paul, they agree on so many things to get the different parts of the establishment working together. And what we're seeing now with the Kennedy and Cornell West campaigns is the fur- further fragmentation of people in the anti-establishment. I think that's exactly what we don't need. And I'm disappointed in both of those camps right now. So I hope that they will change as quickly as possible. Yeah. And that's not to pump our own bags here, but that's this podcast is mainly a Bitcoin podcast. And that's one of the reasons why we talk a lot about Bitcoin and try to educate about Bitcoin because we think it's one of these tools that um, could both sides of that fragmentation could agree is, is, is good. It takes money out of the power of the state and the banking sector gives it back to individuals. Um, and that's part of the main thing we do here, but we've expanded TFTC stands for truth for the commoner. And so expanding it behind beyond, excuse me, uh, the monetary aspect of Bitcoin and into other areas like the ones that you cover. I think it's important. I will try to tune in and learn some more. I know very little about that. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sam. Have a great night. You too. Peace and love, freaks. Okay.